Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Uh, it's twice on Sunday. That's Heard Tell Show's recap of the week that was. Get you ready for the week that is a coming. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you are across the street or around the world. We had five great guests this past week, and we kicked off the week talking a little politics. Uh, if you remember, the first thing in the path to the presidency is the Iowa caucuses. Well, that was kind of a disaster in 2020, and a lot of folks are wanting to change that, including the Democratic Party. They had a full front page spread in the Washington Post recently about that very issue. So we do what we always do. We're going to turn down the noise. We're going to skip the national narrative. We're going to go out to Iowa. We're going to talk to our friend John Deeth. Now, he's actually been a party representative for the Democratic Party. He's been an election official for a long time, and he's worked on organizing the caucuses for almost 20 years. He's the perfect guy to talk about this. And a couple other things are involved out there as well. Was 2020 as bad as it looked on TV? Uh, He gets into why the caucus, what it was supposed to be, what it turned out to be, what it could be in the future. More importantly, whether or not they could get rid of it, even if they wanted to. How does that affect Iowa's first in the nation status in their long running feud with New Hampshire? We also talk Iowa politics. Uh, Senator Chuck Grassley. People talk about Biden being too old. Chuck Grassley's 10 years older than him and he's running for reelection. What's that about? Is it just part of a secession plan to handpick his uh, successor in that office? We get into all this with Iowa expert John Deeth. It's a great conversation. It's a big, fat information sandwich. You're going to love it. Good election information, good politics information right after this on Hertel. The optics were just horrible. You have a lot of cases. They're school gyms, uh, places like churches in a lot of these cases. And they're just absolutely overflowing. We saw the optics of 2020 where you have, you know, you'd have a church building, you'd have the auditorium and then the whole outside of the church. And then you have the line outside and they're trying to take TVs out there. Optically, it looked like chaos on the ground. Was it chaos? Was that an accurate depiction or was it just people trying to make the best of a bad decision? And it just looked way worse than it was. I think, first of all, I don't want to throw the local volunteers under the bus. They do the best that they can. Uh, with an impossible situation. The problem is that enough rooms that are big enough just don't exist. Once you get above about the size of a grade school gym that'll hold maybe 200 people, spaces are few and far between. The average Iowa caucus score went to a caucus of 191 people, which has got that gym already pretty full. Uh, In my county, Johnson County, which is the most democratic in the state, more than half our precincts were over 300 people. Uh, And the more new people that get involved who aren't familiar with the rules and the folkways, 
the more confusion is, there is and the more, you know, frankly, anger that there is. They don't understand why they have to stand around and wait so long when all they want to do is vote and go home. One of the complicating things is that the Republicans have a completely different set of rules uh, that really pretty much are vote and go home. But the Democrats, everything in Democratic nomination politics is centered around proportional representation, which is why you're grouping into groups that have to add up to more than 15% of the room and you have the realignment periods and things like that. But a lot of people just aren't interested in those things. They want to cast their ballot, have their vote for president recorded, and then go home and you know have an evening. Yeah. Talking to John Deeth out in Iowa. Um, let's start there, though. 2020, the obvious thing happened is by the time they figured out who won the Iowa caucuses, we were already on to the next state. Actually, we were already basically in the South Carolina by the time they got that sorted out. That's just not viable when these campaigns. I bet you you could tell me right now which presidential candidates for 2024 are already starting to set up shop in Iowa, can't you? Like they put so much time and effort into this. It's just it's becoming a return on investment issue because the winners aren't really translating to the greater race. Plus the chaos involved, this this seems like it's kind of in a bit of a death spiral, at least optically and nationally. Is that how it feels to you? Yeah, we uh, we've kind of had three strikes you're out with the uh, results. Uh, it's just sheer bad luck that Iowa's had three ties in a row, uh, first in 2012 on the Republican side and then in 16 and 20 on the Democratic side. And caucuses were never set up to have the kind of precise, instant results uh, that a state-run election does. Uh, it's not about how many people voted for so-and-so. A caucus is really about electing delegates to a next level of convention. And so instead of using uh, the infrastructure of the 99-county election offices, which is one of which is where I work my day job, they are relying on an all-volunteer network of people who are trying to report into a state party. And that uh, was a recipe for disaster, as we uh, as we found out in 2020 on the Democratic side. Is it funny? I guess it's irony, though, is you talk about the way the, the caucuses became national because of the limitations of photocopying and ditto machines. That's the purple ink stuff for people like me old enough to remember it from. Mm-hmm. And as I say that, lots of us can smell that instantly from our school days. That, that was limiting that what got it. Is it kind of a little bit of an irony that the new technology, the limitations of that is the thing that might actually finally kill off the Iowa caucuses, at least in their traditional form? Well, there's a number of things that are combining to kill off the Iowa caucuses. And I recently uh, told my county party that I'm not going to organize them anymore. Uh, I don't mind hard work, but I mind futile work. And I felt like I was enabling a process that just isn't right. Uh, the uh, the results reporting process was the biggest meltdown in uh, in 2020. I think the precinct volunteers did the best they could managing the crowds, although there were you know sharp tempers because you're, you're in a highly contested, highly competitive race. Uh, but people did the best they could, but then they couldn't uh, they couldn't report the results. Depending upon who you believe, that was either the Iowa Democratic Party's fault or the DNC's fault. Uh, I'm not going to go into the blame there. But the thing is, Iowa's already got an infrastructure of 99 election offices staffed by 
uh, professionals who know how to count votes and report election results, and yet we're not using that. We're relying on a network of, uh, of volunteers, and that just isn't, uh, that's just not cutting it in the 21st century. Yeah, John Deeth out in Iowa joining us. Uh, we know there's a lot of pride involved. Uh, there's a lot of uh, inter, I don't know how you want to call it, but interstate rivalry with New Hampshire about who gets to go first. That's oh, yeah. on the national level. <laughs> yeah, that's on the national level, though. The people that actually have to do these elections, the volunteers, the professional poll workers, where are they at it? Because they're the ones that are really carrying the burden here. Are they ready for a changeover to a primary system, even despite the national? I mean, I know nobody wants to give up their power and prestige, but are the workers like, OK, this has got to change. Y'all killing us. Well, there's really two separate questions going on with Iowa right now. Caucuses versus primary and first in the nation. And I've been focused on caucuses as a system because I'm not going to you know, stand here and argue my state shouldn't be first. Of course, that's kind of fun. But uh, there are a lot of the rank and file activists like themselves who are starting to stand up and say first can no longer be an excuse for a bad process. Uh, the We haven't even touched on it yet, but one of the biggest problems with the caucus is that you have to be in person uh, physically present to participate. There's no real absentee process. You can't request a mail ballot and vote it at home in secrecy. You have to be at a meeting. And even our attempt at uh, including people who couldn't attend, which was satellite caucuses, you were still looking at having to be at a specific place at a specific time. Uh, my wife missed two caucuses in 2008. The boys were too little to go. And in 2016, she got hit with mandatory overtime at work. So she didn't get to participate until 2020. Good grief. Uh, John Deeth out in Iowa. One more thing on the caucuses, just to wrap it up. Uh, the National Party is obviously making some pushes for change. They bring up things like Iowa's diversity. They bring up things like the antiquated caucus. Do you think the first in the nation in the caucus is combined? Can they be bifurcated where you get one or not the other? And which one would you prefer? How do you see this playing out between now and 2020? Because they basically got to the end of this year. They're going to have to make a decision here one way or the other. So what do you think it's going to play out? It's hard to say. One of the biggest factors in how Iowa has set up its rules has been this kind of trying to read the tea leaves of Bill Gardner, the New Hampshire Secretary of State, who recently retired. And we didn't want to do anything that upset him that might make him move New Hampshire in front of Iowa. The other the other issue is that Iowa's Republicans, who are in full control of the state government, likely will be for the near future, are not interested in changing anything about their processes. The Democrats cannot unilaterally enact a primary without a change in state law, and the Republicans don't want to change state law. So what I'm focused on right now is reforms that the Iowa Democratic Party can do that can make the caucuses something closer to a primary election. Now, I understand Iowa, there's this, oh, we're too old, we're too white, we're not diverse enough. My only argument to that, and again, I'm not against my state going first, is Iowa is full of the kind of voters that the Democratic Pact, if we're ever going to build a comfortable margin in national elections, if we're ever going to keep control of the Senate, uh, we're going to have to win back rural voters. But first, and the caucuses are separate questions. My priority is dealing with the caucus process. A bad process can't be an excuse anymore just because we want to stay first. Yeah, it's a good point, because if the process is bad, it really doesn't matter if you're first, second or 50th, does it? Exactly. If you can't go because you had mandatory overtime, what good is being first? Yeah.
back twice on Sunday. That's Hertel's uh, recap show of the week that was. Had a great conversation this week with Kelsey Grant. Now, she works in consulting in the energy industry. She helps energy companies try, in her own words, be the best that they can be to steal the old Army tagline. Uh, and she helps them reduce things like social risk. Well, what does that mean? Well, of course, anytime you're talking energy, you're also talking about politics and the environment. And we get into all those things with Kelsey Grant. She talks about how not only do we need to define what risk, social risk management is and things like this, she also gets into terminology, how uh, people on the right have recoiled from terms like carbon, carbon pricing, carbon taxes, things like this, and how they probably should do some reclaiming and redefining of the terminology that has just turned into buzzwords and stop reacting to the narratives of it and get into some of the policy, which could be good policy. And also, more importantly, that if you don't engage in these conversations at all. Only one side is talking. That means only one side ever gets to do anything with the policy side of it. So we get into all this energy, the environment, a great conversation with another of our great Young Voices contributors, Kelsey Grant on Young Tip. On Kelsey Grant on her tell right after this. Is part of this a terminology problem? Because I, I've kind of gotten to the point studying this stuff where I'm just, I'm very content to just say, I don't know about a lot of the climate change stuff. I'm skeptical of the, you know, the world's going to end in five years. You know, you can miss me with all that nonsense. Is there a problem with pollution and stuff? Well, we know that how much of it's man-made, how much of it's natural. But my thing is, I do care about conservation. I do care about, you know, the environment on that level. I grew up out in the woods. I would like everybody to have that opportunity. I grew up in West Virginia, which is you know, pretty pristine as far as natural beauty goes compared to a lot of places. I like those places being preserved. Is some of it just nomenclature and terminology of like, hey, we need, if you care about conservation and if you're more of a conservative person and you have the concepts of stewardship already kind of ingrained in you, you need to be in these conversations because then you are the voice that's blunting some of that more radical, crazy stuff. Yeah. So there is a serious language problem when we talk about climate change. So obviously, climate change is seen as a progressive issue. And typically, the only language we can recall when we think about climate, it's typically through progressive terms. Um, And those terms are fine. They relate to a certain subset of the population. But when conservatives are trying to engage in the climate discussion, they really can might struggle in relating to the problem. So if you hear me talk about climate change, you're not going to hear me talking probably about down with capitalism, that we need to destroy capitalism to address climate change. You might not hear me talking about justice as much, but you'll probably hear me talking about is, like you said, stewardship. I'm a deeply religious person. I will tie it back to uh, my faith and creation care, stewarding what is good. And so that's the kind of language that resonates with me. And conservatives have this language, and you articulate it very well, that you care about conservation. Um, But we just need more Republican proud voices using that language to discuss climate change. Now, to be fair to the conservatives that uh, kind of recoiled some of this stuff, you you said what has usually been a taboo topic in the past. But when you start saying the word tax and carbon tax and pricing and things like that, they naturally recoil and go, well, that's going to drive up costs. That gets government intervention. What's the retort to that? What's the explainer to that to try to get folks that, you know, usually raising taxes is a non-starter with a lot of those folks on any reason, but obviously we have to have some taxes for some things. Why would this be a good place for that? Yeah, so this is a timely question uh, in light of where energy and gasoline prices are right now. And so it's important to acknowledge that on on its own, a carbon tax 
is regressive on its own. But going back to an original point that I had made is that a carbon tax is an incredibly flexible policy and you can design it however you want. And I didn't address this in my article because you only have so many words that you can uh, have in an, in an opinion piece, but there's actually a, a version of a carbon tax that addresses exactly that problem you brought up about energy prices. So you can actually, there is, there's, a, there's actually a, a Republican climate platform that's actually structured around um, this kind of proposal. But what you can do is in addition to a carbon tax, you can pair it with what is called a carbon dividend. And so what that is, it's a monthly rebate back to American households. So the government will take all the money that is generated uh, from a carbon tax minus a very, very small administrative fee, and they will dividend it back to every single American household. And what that does is it not only offsets the rising energy costs, for a majority of Americans, they would be left even more whole than they were before. And so it insulates them from these rising energy and gasoline prices. And you know what's even better is with that rebate or dividend, whatever you wanna call it, each American is empowered and allowed to do whatever they want with it. They can use it to invest in their, their child's college education. They can use it to buy a gun. They can use it to buy an electric vehicle. They can use it to put solar panels on the roof. They can do whatever they want with it, but at the end of the day, it would insulate them and protect them from rising energy costs that a lot of people should and already are deeply concerned about. So you wrote this piece uh, before uh, the events in Ukraine, Russia invades them. Uh, obviously, huge geopolitical ramification, huge energy and environmental and climate implications because of the uh, gas and natural gas pipelines that go through Ukraine to get to Europe. What's changed since then as far as the policies go? Because you're talking about things like carbon offsets, you talk about border policies. What's changed because of what Russia did? Yeah. So in my article, I discussed what was called or is called a border carbon adjustment. And I cite, a, I think, a fantastic article written by Senator uh, Kramer, a Republican senator, on the topic of a border carbon adjustment and Russia. And so before I talk about what has changed since, since the invasion, I think I'll just list a, a few things or the, a few um, benefits and advantages to border carbon adjustment. And to take a step back, what a border carbon adjustment uh, mechanism is, is it's a fee applied at the border. So there's a, a fee that is tacked onto carbon intensive goods coming into the United States or the country that has applied a border carbon adjustment. And moving forward, I'll also refer to it as a BCA for short. Um, so first, a border carbon adjustment is a way for the United States to capitalize on its already very carbon efficient processes at home, giving it an instant competitive advantage in um, the global markets against trading partners that are less carbon efficient at home. Second, it allows the United States to set the rules on um, climate policy and energy policy globally, posturing us as a leader rather than a follower um, into the 21st century on energy development and climate. And in relation to Russia, which is what the um, Senator Kramer's article really had to uh, do with, is a border carbon adjustment has the potential to undercut Russia's uh, leverage over our energy dependent EU allies. Um, so, you know, Russia's um, oil and gas exports um, make up about 40 to 60% of the government's uh, revenue every year. And it's a really key leverage, uh, leverage tool the United States 
and in addition with uh, in partnership with our EU, EU allies over um, Putin. And so then you asked, you know, what has changed since uh, Putin has invaded Ukraine? And so my opinions on a border carbon adjustment hasn't changed uh, necessarily. Um, I think it's a good policy for the reasons I just mentioned. However, there's something something that I've really gotten out of the uh, Russian-Ukraine conflict and in terms of how our, our energy markets are, are, are um, operating right now is we should address uh, energy policy with at least a little bit more humility. So what we are seeing with um, the energy transition uh, debate and energy transition narratives that have been unfolding is that people who had um, beliefs about the energy transition um, and climate policy before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they're basically using the invasion to affirm um, what they had already thought on both sides of the argument. And I really think that's probably an unproductive way for us to carry forward our uh, debates and conversations on energy. I think it's really important for us to step back and to try to be as humble as possible um, moving forward because there are balancing, there are considerations that we have to balance here. One is climate. And the other one, and this isn't, these are not the only two, but two major uh, considerations right now is nuclear risk. And so the, the, I think the question I'm really wrestling with right now, I don't have a perfect answer, is how do we pursue smart, responsible energy policy that doesn't uh, increase um, uh, conflict with uh, uh, countries like Russia that are, being, are somewhat unpredictable, who have put their nuclear weapons on high alert, and so that's my biggest takeaway um, after the invasion is to just proceed very, very cautiously and humbly. And in fact, I think this going back to the original point of my article is I think this is where Republicans would be very useful. I think Republicans could help support us in developing a very pragmatic, responsible um, approach to uh, pursue to uh, approach to decarbonization policy at home and internationally. Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. A fun conversation with a new guest making their debut on this program, uh, Lillian Tara. Now, she's a UVA student up in Virginia, and we wanted to talk a little education with her. And she was there for the Glenn Youngkin election, which was dominated by issues involving education. But she's also a student of economics, and she talks a lot about economic issues. And we get into with education that education is like a lot of other things, both in the government and outside of the government. If you want the truth of what's really going on, follow the money. We talk about how people feel like it's icky to talk about money when it's education because we want it to be this magical place where students go to learn and teachers are all altruistic and just want to teach. And there's no outside factors involved in that. But that's not the world we live in. Money rules everything. And if we're not going to talk about the economics of education, we can't ever address the issues with education. We get into all this with Lillian Tara, a great conversation, economics, education, a little bit of politics, whole lot of culture, whole lot about how things actually are, not how we want them to be. We get into that conversation on Hertel right now. Okay, you are an uh, economics person. Uh, anytime we talk about education and anytime we talk about education controversies, we got to talk about the money, though, because we all know that the, the predominant thing to try to fix education in America is let's throw more money at it 
when it comes to these issues of trust, when it comes to issues of policy, though, uh, money's not going to fix this. Hiring more teachers isn't going to fix this. You talked about flexibility being important to something we need to put into the system, but this is a system that's shown itself to be, of all things, the least flexible. Is there a practical way you can see to get into this other than maybe they're going to have to address it as a funding mechanism? They're going to have to address it as a training mechanism. What do you see that practically they can try to do some flexibility in what has become a really, really big bureaucratic nightmare in the U.S. education system? Oh, well, I think there's never been a government program that that wouldn't be perfect or improved with with extra funding. I think the issue is that the the systems that are set up and how the money is used are always going to waste it. And so I'm going to give a couple examples. Uh, one of them would be uh, how teachers are hired and fired. So in a lot of districts, uh, especially thanks to union interests, what we see is that teachers get pay, pay rises based on seniority and they get them as they age. That in no way guarantees competence. And there is no room for local principals, let's say, to hire and fire on the basis of competence alone because you have all these state and uh, local licensing laws, for example. And these serve as barriers to entry for perfectly good teachers otherwise. And this is an example that I always say that I find to be very wrong in terms of how hiring is, which is the fact that a doctor can't walk into a high school and ask to teach a biology course and be hired for that because he doesn't have a license for teaching it is an example of how that requirement is weeding out some of the best teachers because you don't need a teaching degree to be competent and, and competent in teaching a subject that you're clearly good at professionally. Um, and reducing those barriers would open up the field for a lot of wonderful teachers from tradition, untraditional avenues that we haven't considered before. And I think that is des des desperately needed. You mentioned in your writing, there was three uh, executive orders that Glenn Youngkin uh, issued pretty much on day one, give or take. We talked about a couple of them already, uh, but one of the other ones, uh, when you're talking about installing confidence in the school system, parents were talking about they want more transparency. Well, one thing that got pointed out was with, and even before COVID, but COVID really pushed this forward. Things like syllabuses, things like lessons plan, almost all school systems now have some sort of an online system, whether it's PowerSchool, Blackboard, uh, Ingenuity, there's a couple of different ones. Almost all of them have some kind of online thing. Kind of some of the argument on that was, well, that's trending that way anyway. Is that sort of stuff necessary to actually be put into law or is that infringing onto the teachers? Uh, is there such a thing as too much in-classroom interference from the outside? I know parents have a right for their children, but at the same time, they aren't professional educators. We do need to give the teachers a little bit of room to breathe here as well, don't we? Sure, and I think actually many parents would agree with you in that most parents have no interest in micromanaging things like Blackboard or relatively uncontroversial means of delivering education, let's say. And I think the greatest controversy has been of substance, and that would be more political issues. I think up till now, I've, I've rarely seen a teacher. I think the issue with COVID was that some students were uh, unhappy being kept at home. Some would rather have been kept at home. And that was the political element of COVID and not really the educational side of things. So yeah, I think many would, would agree with you on that. Let's talk about that for just a second, because again, your background is in economics. That's where you like. Um, Economically, I, I know I wrote about it when you have the schools completely shut down and you have, you know, parents and teachers and students all in the same boat where they can't go into a school, but they still had to go to the grocery store together. They still had to do other things together. 
that that weighs on the economy in a weird way because that gets into people's mindsets because I know I wrote about it, you know, the shopping centers right across from where the grade school and the high school is and all the same people, they're not allowed to go in the school, but they're all at the grocery store right across the street. That sort of a mentality that gets into the economy a little bit, doesn't it? When you just break a routine, like going to school every day, or uh, a lot of parents that were maybe part-time workers while their kids are in school. Now they got to be home all the time. The child's care stuff. We we're back away from it a little bit. I think the way schools and education and the school shutdown was really one of the real drivers of the economic uncertainty that didn't get talked about because when the kids aren't in schools, because let's call it, call it what it is, education is a giant daycare program for a lot of kids. Um, that's a massive disruption to the economy. And I don't think we talked about it enough because when the parents don't have certainty about their childcare and their children, there's just no way they're economically going to be spending like they normally are, are they? No, and that's a really, really good point because- Ultimately, education serves two functions. One is education, perhaps in quotes, and the second is glorified daycare. And right now, as a society, we're at the point where the norm is both parents working and sending their kids to school. And at this point, it makes sense to put your kids somewhere. As long as they're not being actively harmed, it's better than keeping them home because parents aren't comfortable or qualified, supposedly, or interested in homeschooling. And I think this is actually very interesting because we should be looking at alternatives in terms of where kids could go other than um, the traditional school systems because they have to be somewhere while their parents work. And so we have to recognize this, that this isn't just an issue about how kids are being taught, but how that's benefiting the parents. And so this is just as much a parent issue as it is the children. In many cases, people don't even care so much about the education uh, as they do the fact that their kids are being occupied for eight hours a day. Uh, and so, yes, remembering that parents have their own needs in this regard is is super, super important. And they should be talking about the struggles that they have and, and how they they feel that their kids should be taken care of while they're working or if they'd be comfortable working less. Yeah, talking about yeah, t- talking to Lillian Tower. Uh, the other end of that spectrum, though, we found out during the COVID pandemic, and it didn't get talked about a lot, but it showed up in the data a lot to people who pay attention to it. The other end of the spectrum, the children who don't have two parents, some of them don't have one parent, uh, disaffected kids, underprivileged communities, minority groups. There was a lot of kids that got really lost in the shuffle when schools shut down. I... <sighs> It, it, it's it's a little upsetting to me because we talk about online school and things like that. It's like, yeah, that works great. They talk about, well, you can always homeschool your kid if you don't. Most parents aren't equipped to do that. I'm a I'm a fan. Look, if you can homeschool your kids, God bless. That's a you know there that there's a lot that goes into that if you're doing it right. Most people can't do that. It's, I think that's always going to be a small percentage. But when you look at the students that got left behind and they and some of them have just disappeared from the school system and still not come back doesn't to me this says that when we look at education it needs to be an all of the above type thing not just a one or two solution thing because we found out with the pressure of this on with these disadvantaged kids kids with different parenting situations one size fits all does not work in education and i think that's a lesson out of this pandemic we need to take of hey when we're talking about like school choice and stuff it's not just a matter of giving certain people a choice it's about having an all of the above policy that best benefits children in education. Yeah, definitely. I think what I what I love as about markets as a as a free market type person is that they're incredibly versatile and very very adaptive to local needs based on local information. And this is something that is incredibly important in education because the local agent is the teacher working with that individual child. And with this element of personality, 
you just don't have something that can be seen from a state bureaucrat's perspective. And this is why I'm a big advocate of, say, charter schools. But one of the issues is that as soon as you bring in monetary issues, let's say, or you say that charter schools are are monetarily more effective, you get charges of, well, you're trying, oh, you care about profit more about our children or any amount of money is worth it if our children are being educated. The first response is, well, they're not. And the second is, so money does matter. And it's important to realize that when systems are doing more with less money, it's reflective of a general efficiency in terms of recognizing needs and addressing them. And that is greater than just profit. That's more about how students are having their needs met. Uh, welcome back to Twice on Sunday. That's Heard Tell's recap show of the week that was, and we had one of our absolute favorites this week, uh, M. Carpenter. She's an attorney. She's the senior editor of Ordinary-Times.com. We couldn't do without her because in addition to being an attorney, she was a English undergrad. And there are some of us at Ordinary Times, uh, not mentioning any names, uh, that don't do so good on the grammar stuff sometimes. She cracks us back into line, but she's going to put her lawyer hat on for us. We're going to talk about this Supreme Court nomination hearings for Kentanji Brown Jackson. We're going to talk about the silliness of that one certain talking head once again bringing up LSAT scores. That's turning into kind of the new HIPAA on the social media feeds. It's something some people are using to try to sound smart and they end up sounding really stupid because they don't know what it is. She does. She's going to explain it to us. Also, we get into something really important. All these big name hearings, all these big name judges, all these confirmation things, you know, you can read all that yourself, right? She'll get into that, talk a little bit about how we can read these opinions and get a feel for these judges for ourselves. We don't have to take anybody else's word for it. The great M. Carpenter on her tell right now. I have something that's going on. I think it's becoming a little bit like our HIPAA discussion and like Nuremberg codes and some other things that you rail on where people start using a legal term to sound like they know what they're talking about with legal things, but they have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, that guy that has that program that I don't like to talk about is once again bringing up and demanding that we see uh, Judge Jackson's LSAT scores. Would you please slowly with small words for the people from Logan and the folks out in overflow that couldn't get into the service, what the LSAT is, what it isn't, and what it does and does not apply to. Sure. The LSAT is the law school aptitude test. It's basically the SATs for law school that you take. And you know, after you finish college and you're trying to get into law school, you take the LSAT. It's an entrance exam. Um, it's nothing more than that. It has nothing to do with one's um, aptitude to be a judge or their knowledge of the law uh, or their how they apply the law. Um, there are no legal questions on the LSAT. There's no pre, uh, they don't assume any, any pre-knowledge of the law when you take the LSAT. It's more of um, reading comprehension. Uh, my favorite part of it is logic puzzles. You know, those that say there are five people sitting at a table. The person in red is sitting next to Jim. Jim is not wearing blue. The blue is sitting at the end, you know, things like that. You've got to figure out what order the people are sitting in. Logic puzzles, love those. Um, that's what the LSAT is. So to be demanding the LSAT scores of a judicial, of a Supreme Court nominee is like asking for the SAT scores um, 
when you're, you know, somebody's applying for a job. They may want your college transcripts, they may want your grades, but no one asks what your SAT scores were unless you're trying to get into college. So it's, it's, it's really seems like a pathetic reach uh, to if that's the best they can do is, well, you won't tell us how what your LSAT scores were. That's pathetic. Wait a minute. Now, there's no legal questions on the LSAT. No, because this is a test you take before you go to law school. They don't expect you to know anything about the law before you go to law school. This is just sort of a, are you, you know, are you smart enough to, to be successful in law school? That's the point of this. Can you comprehend? Can you, can you logically parse the facts and, and come up with a conclusion that makes sense? It has nothing to, there is no um, legal questions on the LSAT. So why even bring that up? I know the answer. This is a rhetorical question because, uh, you know, insipidus dollars want to lie to you and make it sound like there's something insidious here when there is not. I kind of compare it to like, you know, I was in the military. So you take an ASVAB, a lot of high school students do. You take the ASVAB, it's a placement and to tell people you're, you know, try to get some insight into your abilities, but that had absolutely nothing to do with my military career. It had nothing to do with the rank I achieved. It had nothing to do with how I performed my duties. Uh, the SAT, ACT, we've had a lot of discussions over that. I, I don't even know what to say about it. It's, so, it's just so insepitously stupid to demand the LSAT. Is yeah. it just a legally? I, I, that's why I compared it to you ranting about HIPAA it's, I think it's just really people wanting to sound smart when they're not. And in this particular case, with this particular talking head who knows well and good that it's nonsense, trying to fool people into thinking you're saying something legalese when it really isn't. Exactly. And it's, this is another instance, and it baffles me that people don't understand this, of people who know better that think you don't know better. And they are counting on you not knowing better, which means basically his, he thinks his audience is stupid. So <laughs> there's no other way to explain it for me. You have to think your audience is stupid to say something like that and expect it to, to uh, be influential to the people who are hearing it. Um, it be, and why is he doing this? Because best I can tell, he can't find anything, anything else. That it, It's just such a reach that I can't fathom why else he would be going for that, uh, that angle of things. And I'll just add that... Um, if Judge Jackson, I believe she, she went to Harvard, I'm going to say that if she did release her LSAT score, it would probably be pretty darn good. Yep. Uh, welcome back to Her Tells Twice on Sunday show where we recap the week that was. Uh, we went down to Australia, down under another Young Voices contributor, uh, Zinyun Quack, uh, joined us. She's a student of economics, has degrees in economics. She's also an immigrant, moved to Australia to study in Sydney from Singapore, has great perspective on economics and things like immigration and how those two things always go together and you cannot separate them. We talk a lot of China, of course, because that dominates economics in that part of the world and all the rest of it. We get into some interesting stuff as well, though. Uh, she deals with the meme that's online of how, why doesn't the richest man in the world just write a check and in poverty or in childhood hunger or in whatever issue you want to bring up? Well, because that's not how that works. It wouldn't do any good. And just throwing money at a problem has never solved it. So we get into what really causes poverty, which leads into what 
causes wealth generation. That also leads into talking about uh, free markets versus authoritarian systems and how we're seeing in places like Russia, the authoritarian systems, you can never have true wealth generation. You can just redistribute it and funnel it to certain people. You need to unleash people to generate wealth. We talk about all these economic issues with Jin Young Quack, great new friend of ours. Enjoy this conversation immensely. I think you will too. And you can hear it right now on Hertel. So somewhere like Russia, we we found out now once they start putting sanctions on, you know, the system collapses pretty quickly because it's all cronyism. It's not really a bottom up innovative society. Uh, how much does government pressure or a dictatorial pressure in these cases uh, talk about how that affects wealth generation? Because it'll affect a lot of wealth for a very, very small amount of people. But it's because the system is just funneling money. It's not actually generating wealth in the way like an American does or like uh, the England and Europe of the last century did. These places where we've seen great uh, Japan of the last 60, 70 years, Germany, post-World War II, these places that really explode in economic growth and economic freedom. uh, You're not getting that in a dictatorship or an autocratic society because you just can't, can you? No, you just can't. And I think a really good example is China. Um, In the Mao Zedong era, there was a cultural um, uh, leap and um, it actually ended in um, a a huge massacre of innocent lives. And that's because of dictatorship. So um, China only started to become... um, and uh, become an economic powerhouse when they started embracing um, parts of capitalism. And who knows how much they can achieve if they fully embrace um, the free market. But, um, but, but in recent news, we can see that um, the current uh, president, Xi Jinping, he is looking to tighten reins. Um, to He's hunting down on the, the wealthy the affluent, and I think it's only a matter of time before we see China experiencing what they experienced um, during Mao Zedong's era. Now, the thing with China is they've got a built-in advantage on the world economic stage that's letting them kind of be the exception to the rule about that is because they have a workforce of three-quarters of a billion people. They have a workforce of 750 million people, excuse me, that are, for all extensive purposes, pretty much under government control. They can control where they work, where they put their industry, these things. And that has been the real secret to the economic might of China. And I don't think people talk about it, that a lot of it's just a sheer math problem of like, hey, we've got the biggest workforce in the world, and we also have complete and total control of that workforce. Yes, and um, it, it, is, it is simply quite... Um... I think China itself is a very interesting topic. Um, but at the same time, I, I do think that uh, if, uh, if, 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 China, if the president of China were to um, uh, carry out even more restrictive policies, it will, um, the, popu- the, the, sheer, the sheer mass of the country will not be able to help um, the economic progress. Um, and I think we can see that from history. Um, during Mao Zedong's era, there were, there were a lot of people as well, but um, they, were, they were still living in poverty. 
And um, you can see, you can, um, when you look up uh, a lot of people's, um, uh, people, when you, when you look, when you look up people who have survived the cultural revolution, you will find that um, you will find that they have learned to embrace capitalism in Western countries, and it doesn't help that it doesn't help that uh, that China is is taking a step towards capitalism because they understand that um, it is only a matter of time before um, things go back to the way they were. Yeah, talking to our friend Quack over in Australia. Uh, why is it? I know we talk about the human rights issues China has currently today, and we understand that their economic might is buying their excuses and ex- and uh, enabling them to do that because people don't want to, you know, they don't want to break up the cash cow that China is. Why isn't something you talked about the Cultural Revolution? Uh, the Great Leap Forward is quite possibly the greatest single human caused disaster and extinction of people and life in the history of the world. And we don't really talk about that much. I know China censors that's a lot of it, but you're just talking about 20, 25 million people starving to death, basically on purpose. Why do you think that's not more in our collective consciousness as the world, especially in the West, where we're usually pretty good with stuff like human rights, but we just never talk about the great leap forward. And this is one of the most horrific things in all of human history. I think uh, I think perhaps a lot of countries I think a lot of countries don't want to jeopardize their economic ties with um, China because they understand that um, even just by the sheer mass of the country um, it, it'll, it, it'll be quite difficult for us to for any countries to uh, to address this without uh, you know triggering the um, triggering China I I think. Uh, it was really interesting because I, I read a I've it was really it was it, I read an interesting article by the Prime Minister of Singapore Lee Hsien Long, and he was uh, he he basically gave an in depth um, uh, analysis on um, trade ties between Singapore and the US and China, and what he really strives for is. Um, the perfect balance between um, not agitating China while maintaining good ties with the states, and I think perhaps a lot of um, perhaps world world leaders um, all over the world are trying to do the same thing. Um, and while this does make sense economically, it doesn't do anything to address um, uh, the problems that China faces. Uh, that'll do it for this edition of Twice on Sunday. We do this every Sunday. We recap the week that was and the guests that we had. We'll have a brand new episode of Herd Tell out tomorrow. Every weekday, you get a new episode of Herd Tell. If you're subscribed, it's free to subscribe. It only costs you a click. You can do it on YouTube. You can watch us every morning or on any of the podcast platforms. You can listen at any time. We also have a partnership with Radio Big Talker Networks. Uh, they have a Facebook feed. If you want to watch the live video or any of the archived episodes on the video page of Facebook, it's also a great way to share the program. As for us here, though, you get a couple things. You get the weekly show like we talked about. You also get the Twice on Sunday show, which you just finished listening to. Long form podcast. 
that get a little more into the weeds on things that need a little bit more effort and attention to them. We've got 36 of them. We hope you'll check out all of them, everything from culture and politics to elections, some really important issues in there too, like the opioid crisis, like missing persons, ones we're really, really proud of. Do go check those out on whatever platform you're listening. And the best thing you can do for us, if you want to help us out, only costs you a couple more of those free clicks. Share us. Use social media platforms. All those platforms we just talked about have a share button. They have a comment button. Make sure you let us know you're out there and share us with your friends. Contact us, hurttellshow at gmail.com, at hurttellshow on the Twitter, either one. All of the guests, their social media handles for Twitter appear on the screen. Make sure you follow and support them. And until we talk to you tomorrow for more brand new episodes of Hurt Tell, I'm Andrew Donaldson, and we hope wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. Can't wait to see you next time on Hurt Tell. All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.